0: While they're doing that, let's go ahead and uh, open up your copy of God's Word. Last time we were together, we were studying the scriptures that deal with the close of the tribulation period. And those in particular deal with uh, that close of the tribulation time and the second coming of Jesus or his glorious appearing. For for the believer, as I was saying earlier, these are days that we've longed for. I mean, since you came to faith and became aware that... Christ was going to return in a glorious appearing. Those are days that we've longed for. And as soon as we begin to read about them in the Bible and have them explained to us, we have begun to make this a day that we are looking for, as we just sang in that song, when we all get to heaven and those days that we will get to rejoice in the presence of the Lord and learn from him are sweet days. And so we look forward to that. I'd like you to pick up, if you would, in uh, chapter 19, verse 15. And we'll just do a little quick uh, review, which helps us kind of get on the same page as we move into these passages in chapter 20, verse 15, as he comes in his glorious appearing, verse 15 says, uh, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I appreciate it. Dr. Jones pointing out the names of Christ and the names of God. And that is another one. And there's one that he's going to have that we won't even know yet uh, that uh, no book contains. And we're looking forward to that. But what amazing thing the Lord pauses to make us understand. This is written here because this is truth. And he's going to judge men, it says, and slay them with his word. It'll have power to take physical life, his word. And we know that all uh, already his word uh, tells what life is and when life is not. But here in particular, I think that it, uh, it proclaims as was read in the Word, it will proclaim people are dead in their sin or alive in Christ. And when Jesus comes, it appears that the words will actually literally accomplish that slaying. He's come to carry out God's wrath on sin. The time of God's forbearance, the time of his patience, uh, the time of his kindness are over. And we see the horror of Armageddon then open up for us here again as we did in chapter 14. And as the battles joined uh, in Armageddon, an angel makes this announcement. Verse 17, if you'd look there. Uh, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, a symbol for the great supper of God. Now, this is not a pleasant passage to read, but it's the truth, so we read it. Uh, and of course, you can gather what they're going to sup on. Verse 18, So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men. So not just those joined in the battle, the flesh of all men both free men and slaves, small and great, those who are unredeemed. Those are who he's speaking. I was going to clarify that more in a minute. And he proclaims that God's going to be victorious uh, even before the battle begins. So the battle hasn't started. The angel announces, come birds and sup, Uh, this is what's going to happen. Because even though the Antichrist and the false prophet and the kings of the earth think this is going to be a battle, they really will not be able to resist Jesus. And as hard as it is to say, and even uh, harder to hear, I would imagine, it's really the carrying out of a death sentence uh, on those who oppose God and his Christ. And it will include, verse 18 says, all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great, all those who don't know God and his Christ. Now, you look at uh, Revelation 19:19, 19, 19, if you would. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So you have that parenthetical announcement with the angel, so everything's ready to be joined. And the day's been predicted uh, many times, and, and as uh, Pete was saying earlier, all these specific prophecies that are so accurate—again, we have them, and we can we can trust that as all the ones we've seen uh, fulfilled have been exactly accurate, right down to the very minute detail—we can be assured that that will be the case here as well. But many many writers in the in the uh, Old Testament have predicted this in Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Matthew, uh, the Apostle Paul takes m- much time to tell us about this day. And Jesus himself taught about this day and the days that follow this day uh, when Jesus will judge all those who do not believe. And he taught that in Matthew 25, around verse 31. And those areas there you can see that Jesus spoke of that. Now look at verse 20, if you would, chapter 19 of Revelation. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Jesus takes the leaders, he puts them alive into the lake of fire. And they really lead the way for millions of people who refuse to believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness through his name. Now look at verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him. So it just repeats that. Listen, this is how the death is going to occur. Uh, those who come with him, those who, uh, of the church who will come with him during this glorious appearing, we're not going to have to do any of the fighting. There's no slaying that's going to be occurring. Uh, The angels in the Lord do this. The Lord uh, particularly does it with the word of his mouth. And it says, And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now that is how the tribulation comes to an end at the second coming of Jesus. And they are warnings of a future day of reckoning that already sits fixed in our future. And so it's not as if, well, maybe this will happen, maybe it won't. The Lord has already said this will happen, this day will actually come, be aware of that. And just by way of illustration, I think, it's important that we don't mince words on those types of things. As you are allowed to have a conversation with someone, the Lord leads you in this direction. Many times people want to talk about future events. I really tried to lead the conversation back to your spiritual issues now, but people like to talk about it. Yes, this is what the Bible says. Uh, I think it's important to not delude or soften those warnings. And I was just kind of reading, uh, kind of as an illustration, about the, uh, the warnings on cigarettes and the dangers of soft peddling all of that. And so I was looking up uh, some of the early warnings and just um, some of the studies that went out. But there was a test uh, back in the late 90s of uh, nearly 2,500 children in the United States and in Canada. And in this test, 83% of, uh, could remember a warning on Canadian cigarettes, but only 6% could be able to recall what was printed on U.S. cigarette packages. Because, and the reason was simple, on the front in big bold letters on Canadian cigarettes, the warning was clear and direct, and it said, smoking can kill you, in very large, bold letters. The U.S., of course, had a little bit different packaging, and I just looked up some of the early ones that went on. Here's one of them. Surgeon General's warning, quitting smoking now can greatly reduce serious risks to your health. How about this one? Surgeon General's warning, cigarette smoke contains carbon monoxide. And so we soft-pedaled it, and the the, the illustration was really driven home to me because of a certain individual named Edward DeHart, who died of lung cancer September 24th, 1997. You may be surprised to know that DeHart was the tobacco industry's consultant. He was credited with developing the warning labels that we were to put on U.S. packages of cigarettes, and he really helped craft the first Surgeon General's warning in 1962 with the Tobacco Institute. He created a warning that wasn't even convincing enough for him to follow. And so I think it 's important that although it 's hard to read these and, and as i 've taught through this book a number of times I, I still it 's hard to think about what that day is going to hold, but it is the truth, and it is justice that the Lord will bring to bear, and his justice is always exactly true and related exactly to whatever the infraction is. So we understand the Lord is absolutely true and his holy and, and uh, without any type of impugning on his character that he does these things because these are the things that uh, are what needs to be done. And so we want to make sure that we don't mince words either. And we make sure that we're clear about judgment. Judgment is a real fact for the future for those who, in their dead spiritual state, remain untreated. You move through life in a dead spiritual state, judgment is for sure at the end of that life. And so we want to make sure that we're clear about that, and so we spend some time here, as you may have noticed, making sure that that message is across clearly. Second Thessalonians 1.6 is only one of many places where we see these judgments and they're so clear. But Paul is writing here as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's comforting to know. Uh, We we long for justice, don't we? And of course, many of us in the U.S. have not been really afflicted too awfully badly by people who oppose Christ, but many in other countries are. But the Lord keeps track of all of that. Verse 7, And to give relief to you who are afflicted And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. I think, as you pause right there, I think we see the best fulfillment of that passage at the close of the tribulation time, where believers are on the earth and are afflicted, and in particular, to give relief, it says in verse 7, to you who are afflicted. But of course, he gives relief to all, uh, and he holds that judgment, and he knows how to judge, and that's why he tells us not to take vengeance, because the Lord knows how to to, uh, take revenge. But he said that, uh, and to give relief to you who are afflicted to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. We're say, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And those things are written in parallel, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because many people say they know God, but they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, do they? Or they say they know about Christ, they know all the, uh, all the uh, fixed uh, things about the Lord and his life, but it's the obedience issue that's the proof, isn't it? It always is. And once again, verse 8 says, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These, verse 9 says, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes, verse 10, to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And that's a marvelous day we think about, but a hard day as well. And so that's what we teach. And Colossians 1, verse 28, we proclaim him, it says, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So Paul says, we warn every man and teach every man in all wisdom. And so I appreciate Dr. Blaze as well saying, that's that's all of our job, right? As we understand the truth, we give out the truth and we warn and we teach because we want people to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, very important. Now, the next time sequence recorded for us is in chapter 20. And once again, it's chronological. So as we've followed through these passages, as they've opened up for us, we've had these, these uh, pauses and we've gone back and filled in some gaps. We've uh, filled in some gaps there in the middle. And now we're kind of working our way chronologically through this book. As Christ comes to earth, he touches down. And he takes the Antichrist, he takes the false prophet, and he puts them alive into the lake of fire. The unbelievers who are there on that day, just so that you kind of get your, get your footing here, the unbelievers who are survived to this day, and there's only going to be a quarter, if you just do the math, there's only a quarter of the ones who were alive at the beginning of the tribulation are still alive now on the earth because of all the judgments. So those that still are surviving to that day will be physically killed by the word of Christ's mouth, according to the scriptures. And their souls will go to hell and await the great white throne judgment, where the souls of all those whom have died in their sins have gone. So they will go and await the great white throne judgment. And much like the relaying of the, of the seals and the trumpets and bowls, we see really in one verse the next sequence of events. What happens in chapter 20? Well, the Lord's going to set up his kingdom. Look, if you would, at Revelation 20, verse 1. This is just amazing. And we're not even going to get very far in this in this uh, chapter because there's so many neat things here. And then I saw, okay, so he's seeing all the other things, and then in this sequence of events he uh, comes to this part. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, back in chapter 9, verse 1. In fact, you can turn there if you'd like. Chapter 9, verse 1, we saw uh, what was perhaps Lucifer himself or a demon was given a key during the fifth trumpet judgment. If you'd like to turn there, it'd be great. We'll just kind of refresh our memory uh, because this is the same place, and we'll kind of just review that and then skip back up here again. Chapter 9, verse 1. You can just keep your finger here in 20. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, "...then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and that perhaps is Lucifer himself or some other uh, unholy angel, and the key uh, of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like a smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit." Verse 3, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 5, And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion, when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death, and will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. Look at verse 7. "...the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns of gold." So he's describing a locust, so we can, we can understand from a literal understanding of the Scriptures that these demons are going to take the appearance of a locust. But as you look closely at them, John describes what he sees. Uh, "...and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions." They had breastplates like breastplate of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. Verse 10. They have tails like a scorpion and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. And they have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe was passed, behold, two woes still coming after these things. So here's this pit, and we saw there during that uh, judgment that an angel, an unholy angel, is given the key to unlock the pit where these angels have been uh, here. And so they released, and they were flood all over the earth uh, and do their damage as part of the judgment. And now we have this holy angel, or someone mighty now. Uh, he is not named, and he has the key to this empty abyss. And you remember, we looked at this before, but 2 Peter two four, remember... For if God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. We understand that that pit that's been speaking of, that Tatarus, that pit that we've looked at before, is filled with these angels who did not keep their own place. And, and although we've taught this extensively, I don't want to go back there again and go through this for time's sake. But anyway, this pit has been used to hold unholy angels, in particular throughout the course of human history, ones who do not keep their former place. And I, I told you one of those things is when they inhabit the form of a human. And when they're cast out, many times in Jesus' ministry, uh, they will, he, they'll cry out to him, You did not come to torment us yet, did you? And uh, cast us into the pigs, not into, and, and they imply us not into the abyss because we know that's where they're headed. But anyway, so this is a big, now empty, uh, Pit to be uh, it's going to be used and has been used to hold demons and so this angel comes and uh, he is a mighty angel he's not named he has a key and he has a chain now look at verse two of chapter twenty flip back over there if you will now we're talking about the same place this is an empty pit now because the, the demons flooded out of there and he is uh, there's an empty pit waiting and it's going to be used now again uh, verse two chapter twenty he laid hold of the dragon. The serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things he must be released for a short time. Stop right there. And if you think of how far Satan has fallen, and I think we've looked at that here, perhaps you've looked at it in your... uh, at some other time to where he is now. He went from the the star, of the uh, angel of the morning, the most beautiful thing the Lord had ever created to a fall as far as he's fallen now. And uh, if you think about if there's ever been any question in your mind about who really has the most power, holy or unholy angels, here's your answer. Okay? Because the Lord sends this powerful angel and he's able to take Lucifer himself and he's able to bind him and cast him into this empty pit that had been holding demons before. So, very important. And uh, so, Holy angels, of course, the Lord is the one who's most powerful. And we've said this before that you just kind of, if you look at this rebellion of Satan and a third of the angels, kind of as a coup in a government. And so you have all these different levels of angels who are commanders and some are just soldiers or whatever following the leader and they go and uh, take up their abode here and start doing their mischief. But realize, even with the coup, unlike a government coup where uh, the president has no power over these who have rebelled. God has never lost control over all those who came. They still do his bidding. Uh, they're like spirits with lines drawn around them. They can do so much and no more. They don't have instant access to every believer. Uh, they only have access as the Lord permits them to have access, the scriptures teach us. So it's important to realize that even though they seem to be able to do whatever they want, that hasn't been the case. And here uh, Satan is bound up. And it's, um, John identifies him pretty clearly uh, he says the dragon, and that's out of Revelation, uh, that is, uh, has a root word of its, uh, someone who sees or someone who looks. The serpent of old, that's from Genesis, and the root of that word is sharpness of vision, someone who spots and is constantly looking for someone uh, to terrorize. The devil, he calls him, that's the slanderer or the false accuser. Uh, Satan, who the word for our adversary is used there, so there's no question whom this is, Right? Uh, this is Satan. We understand who it is. It's not some other angel. This is the main one, the main angel, the main fallen angel who is in charge of the rest. And most believe, myself included, that all the demons are going to be shut up down there as well uh, because of the nature of the situation during the thousand year reign. Uh, we see in verse 3, it says, So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And so he and those who follow him will be locked up. Satan himself bound for a thousand years. But it appears that all those who deceive, all those who follow, uh, the deceiver will be gone as well for that short period of time. Now, there are really three distinct views that deal with the millennium. And so I want to touch on them briefly. Uh, I won't teach ex- exclusively on them uh, because uh, two of these, of course, are not correct views of the scripture. Uh, but, uh, and one we've, cr- we've taught on already and we'll continue to, to teach on. But I want you to be familiar with the terms anyway. And I'll go through them briefly and acquaint you with their definitions and something of their history. There's a post-millennialism view, post-millennialism millennialism view, and you've probably heard that view uh, or heard of that word. And really, post-millennialism is uh, the doctrine that the thousand-year reign of Christ is a spiritual reign in the hearts of believers. That's the essence of it. It became popular about the third century AD. It was proposed by a man, a man named Tychonius. Augustine took up that idea and began to teach that the millennium does not lie in the future, but has already begun. Uh, They used uh, Mark chapter 3 and verse 27, where Jesus said, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And uh, that was used and was given as evidence supposedly from Jesus that on the cross he had tied up the strong man Satan, Uh, that's what they said, and uh, in that first coming of Christ, and he will remain that, that, so in that way until his second coming, which he then is loosed for a time before being cast away. Now, there are a couple of problems with that already um, because we're well past the thousand-year mark, um, obviously, but that was impossible for them to know initially, right? And so they had this idea, and all the church believed that Christ's return was imminent, and couldn't have foreseen, I don't think, initially the long period of the church age, which the Lord has allowed to be, But um, they used that. The rapid growth of the church was evidence, they said, of this uh, situation, that the strong man had been tied up. And uh, they thought the church had entered into her inheritance. And uh, you know, Constantine was converted to Christianity in 312, and Christianity became the religion of the kingdom. And so uh, they just pointed all those things as evidence in the world that uh, this was true. And it was generally thought that it would get better and better until Christ came back bodily about 1000 A.D., Uh, The current situation, of course, in the world, not to mention that we're well past 1000 A.D. and he hasn't come, uh, would make it very difficult to reconcile this view with reality, not to mention the early years of Roman persecution of the church. And so it also skips over passages that deal with the rapture and skips over passages that deal with the tribulation. It also does not deal well with the fact that the Bible focuses on a literal fulfillment uh, down to the last detail. And that's what we talked about earlier, is that all the other prophecies we see fulfilled were literal down to the detail And, of course, we understand these prophecies of Christ's return to be that way, too. And so it overlooks that and it uh, lends us to believe that the the remaining prophecies, of course, will be fulfilled in detail, too. So very difficult to reconcile that with uh, what we understand to be reality. Now, there is uh, another view, amillennialism. And that is a view uh, that the thousand-year reign of Christ is merely symbolic. And uh, the thousand years uh, years is a symbol of completeness. And so when you keep that that idea in your mind, then you can begin to see where they would be. So a thousand years is just completeness, so proponents of this view contend that really the great final judgment will follow the second coming of Christ. They have, as you may imagine, a more general conception of prophecy than we would embrace, especially Old Testament prophecy. Prophecies are treated historically or symbolically rather than literally they interpret the Old Testament prophecies of a millennium as being fulfilled in the church now, or that they are references to the eternal state. Now, the preaching of the gospel does not necessarily need to be successful, of course, if you take this view, uh, because there is no coming of the kingdom before the coming of the king. And so when the king comes and the kingdom comes, so the gospel preaching doesn't have to be that successful. It is the simplest view of the three views, certainly, as they just expect the return of Christ to be uh, imminent. And so that basically is the sum of that view. I'll just get, leave that up just for a minute and take, take some notes so you're aware when you see these words, uh, kind of where they are. And then finally, the third view, pre-millennialism, pre-millennialism. And this doctrine is committed to the concept of a bodily, earthly reign by Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Uh, proponents of this view really would believe that he will personally and physically return to inaugurate the Millennium. We fall into that category. We, that's what we believe and teach here, as we believe the Scripture says. It, it then is still in the future, which is what we've been saying, and as we've worked through our time in the Re- Book of Revelation, we know the Book of Revelation was split up into three things. Um, that which was, and that which is now, which is the Church Age, and that which is to come. And so it falls into those things that still remain in the future. This, in spite of what we see in the other things, this was the dominant doctrinal view during the early years of the church. And so these other things were not the dominant ones. They were picked up by some and believed by some, but not the dominant view in the early years of the church. They had a strong expectation of an early return of Christ, of course. All those who watched Christ ascend uh, felt like perhaps they would still be alive when Christ returned. It was a view held by most of the early church leaders, like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, Uh, The doctrine embraces a literal, historical, grammatical uh, position and interpretation of Scripture so that the normal sense of a language can be used. So, If it says a thousand years, it's a thousand years. If it says seven years of tribulation, that's what it is. And so we can just take that as a literal and just work our way through uh, that grammatical, historical position. This view really uh, concerning this passage is the fulfillment literally of dozens of Old Testament prophecies from Samuel and Uh, the book of Psalms and Isaiah and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Micah and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Matthew I mean there's just hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that deal with this and they fall right in line with this understanding of Christ's return and uh, it is the one that best fits all the facts of scriptures and so uh, we embrace this and what what we believe is what we teach because it aligns most closely uh, with what the scriptures teach now those are the three views the last view is the one that we believe and teach. It aligns most closely with what the Scriptures say. Uh, it doesn't skip over anything. It doesn't have to be uh, symbolic in any way. We just can work our way through it as we've been doing through this book now. Now, what's the next thing John sees? Let's look at verse 4. Okay, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Now, let's pause right there. Who are these people? The last part of the verse really tells us that. Look at the rest of it, verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Stop right there. These are the ones who were killed for their testimony and their faithfulness to the Word of God during the Tribulation. This matches perfectly with what we understand about those who were killed during the Tribulation time. There's no use to try to speculate. These are other people somehow we don't know about. These are the people who we saw as we went all the way through. This was going to be the outcome there as they came to faith in Christ during the Tribulation. So they didn't worship the beast. Obviously, that's the Antichrist. They didn't receive his mark. And so these are the people that are being spoken of. They are resurrected right now. And... Of course, if you're a believer, you won't see the tribulation. But just as a thought about those who are in the tribulation time and come to faith, the thing that's neat about that, if it can be neat to be in the tribulation and be a believer, which I don't think will be that great. But if you lose your loved one, at least it's a short time till you see him again. And I remember uh, preaching a funeral of a, a lady named Leela Sager. She was 107 years old when she went to be with the Lord. She lost her husband uh, and I, I preached that, that funeral I think about 2008 and she lost her husband in 1961 who was also a believer and it just occurred to me that you know, as she was ushered in, into the kingdom she saw her husband for the first time in a very long time a long stretch of time to be alone she did not remarry she's a faithful worker for the kingdom and just a godly woman and wonderful and, uh, but she got to see Gus again when she went into the kingdom but in the tribulation time depending on when it is that you lose your life, it could be a very short time before you'll see uh, your loved one again. But they are resurrected right now. And as the passage says, and the passage says that they were faithful, and God always rewards those who are faithful to him. And because of that, they're given places of honor. Now look, if you would, to verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now this will be the time of the great white throne judgment. The bodies of unbelievers of all time that's what it's referring to. That thousand years are completed. The bodies of unbelievers of all time will become will come to the to life at the end of this thousand year reign, and we're going to see that in the verses to come. But referring back to verse four, where it said that the tribulation martyrs came to life, uh, this sentence it says the rest of were dead it did not come to life until the thousand year reign, but it says um, this is the first resurrection. Isn't that great? This is the first resurrection. Verse four says. Now. There are a number of things that this is also called. They take part in what is generally called the first resurrection. It's also called, according to Luke 14, 14. I'll just do a quick survey here so you can recognize the same time period. Luke 14, 14, And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid. Here's what it's called, at the resurrection of the righteous. Same resurrection. uh, The first resurrection or the resurrection of the righteous, both the same resurrection. Uh, It's also called... First Corinthians fifteen twenty-three, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits after that, those who are Christs at his coming, referring to the same uh, time period, those who are Christs at His coming. So it's called the first resurrection, it's called the resurrection of the righteous, it's called the resurrection of those who are those who are Christ those who are Christ at His coming. Hebrews chapter eleven, thirty five, verse thirty five calls it another name women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain, here it is, a better resurrection. Same time period, same exact resurrection referred to in Hebrews by that name. Now, it's going to include a number of different people that aren't mentioned here, but we know from, as we take the scriptures and compare this time period with other time periods, it's going to include, according to 1 Thessalonians 4:13, the redeemed of the church age the redeemed of the church age. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, it includes the redeemed of the church age. This first resurrection includes, at the close of the tribulation, also includes the redeemed of the church age. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. I'm sorry, I didn't advance that soon enough. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 makes this clear. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It includes the Old Testament saints and it includes the tribulation saints. So it includes the redeemed of the church age. It's going to include uh, the Old Testament saints and as we just saw just a minute ago, it will include the tribulation saints. Now, the Holy Spirit carries John along to make these wonderful comments. Verse 6, chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him 4,000 years. It's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. There are only two kinds of eternal resurrection, beloved. That's the resurrection of the just. That's the first resurrection. That's the church, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints. And the resurrection of the unjust. And that's the second resurrection. And make no mistake, every person will be physically raised for an eternal destiny. God will prepare each of those two groups for a body prepared for eternity. The resurrection of the just will have a body prepared to enjoy Christ and God forever in eternity to love Him, enjoy Him, worship Him forever with a body prepared just for that. And those who are in the second resurrection, that's the resurrection of the unjust, will have a body prepared for an eternal destiny separated from God forever in the lake of fire. And those are the only two categories there are. Scripture also teaches about two kinds of death. A death in hell, that's a physical and spiritual. That's called the first death. An eternal death. The lake of fire called the second death. Physical bodies prepared for eternal torment forever in the lake of fire. But as John is carried along, he said, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Isn't that great? Over these, the second death has no power. I remember many years ago, I had a buddy of mine who had this on the back of his car, the bumper sticker. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. It's great, isn't it? Time is gone, so we'll pick up here when we come back next week. I you'll be back with us and get back into this marvelous study, which is just so fascinating for me to go through. Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for your marvelous word again, meeting with us by your Holy Spirit and letting us see these things uh, that you have uh, preserved for us. Grateful that uh, you continue to tutor us as you did John, as he copies these things down with an angelic tutor, showing him the things that are there, answering his questions. Lord, we're grateful that uh, you had him pen these things so we could see them. Thank you for just an understanding of them in a very most straightforward way. We can see what your word says and cross-reference it and understand these things and be prepared for them. And Father, as your son was on the earth, he didn't soft-pedal the coming judgment. He uh, was able to very directly teach about the love of God extended through him, about the sacrifice he would be on the cross for sins of the whole world, and that uh, you would raise him again. The sin presence was real and the punishment was real and the awaiting punishment for those who remain in this spiritual state of death is real. And Lord, help us not to soft-pedal that. Help your word to draw and convict and bring alive those who do not know you. pray that you'll use us to do that. Thank you for the sweetness of the life that we have here, Lord. We recognize that we do not endure difficult times like those who are in other countries right now. So, Father, I pray that because you've given us much, help us to be very faithful with what you've given us. We give you thanks for your, for the saving blood of Christ. We give you thanks for the rich blessings of our family and our lives. The sweetness of relationships with one another. And Father, as we prayed this morning, pray that you make us a church that has a short sin list, recognizing the tendency of the residual presence of sin in the flesh to sidetrack us from the things that are most important. Give us soft hearts hearts that are attuned to your word, quick to understand the presence of sin in our own lives, and to go about the process of killing that off which you've given us, that job to do, and the power to do it by your Holy Spirit. pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.